and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 16. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and it's been a wonderful study just to see what God did way back at the first century. It is an inspired record of the beginnings of Christianity, of the spread of the gospel, of the planting of churches. It's a wonderful, exciting thing to see what God did in their day. And that we pray that He would continue to... We know He's continued to do it for 2,000 years, but that He would continue to spread the gospel even in our own day. Now, we've been looking in chapter 16, which begins Paul's second missionary journey. And this morning we're going to look at verses 11 through 15, which records the first European convert, a woman by the name of Lydia. And uh, it said it's the first European convert, for this is the first time they've been to Europe. God had directed them there. And as we pick up reading in verse 11, we see the missionary team of the Apostle Paul and Silas, young Timothy, and now Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and they're on a ship sailing from Troas to Macedonia, which is Europe. Uh, It wasn't called Europe at that time, but it's the continent of Europe. This wasn't where they planned to go on the second missionary journey, but it's where God clearly wanted them to go and eventually directed them to go. So would you follow with me as I read verses 11 through 15? Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman, the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. So this journey by ship ship only took a couple of days from Troas to Macedonia. Uh, It only took a couple of days because it says that the the wind was with them. They, They ran a straight course. On another trip, it took them five days. Uh, because of the contrary wind. G. Campbell Morgan said, sometimes upon God's business, the wind is with us, and sometimes it is against us. It's not necessarily an indication of God is with you or not. Uh, It's just a remark that he made that I thought was important, that everything doesn't have to go our way for us to be in God's will. Well, they disembark at the port city of Neapolis, And from there, they travel inland by foot another 10 miles along the Via Ignatia. That's the highway, so to speak, that led to Rome. And they go there to the city of Philippi. Uh, 
Luke calls the, the city of Philippi the foremost city in that part of Macedonia. It was named after, by and after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was a very important city. It was a Roman colony, we're told, uh, in verse uh, 12, um, that it was a colony or a Roman colony. That was a technical term that denoted the city's privileged legal status. This was granted by Augustus in the year 31 B.C. One commentator said that the emperor had populated Philippi with retiring soldiers and gave the city the Ius Italicum, uh, the legal character of being part of Italy. Even though it was outside of Italy, uh, it was a short, um, it was a sort of a Rome in miniature or microchasm. Uh, so it was a very important city. And we'll see how that uh, comes to play later in this narrative. Uh, but uh, what I want us to look at this morning is I want us to look at Paul preaches at Philippi. And then we want to see Lydia's response to Paul's preaching. And then thirdly, we'll look at the fruit and the evidence of her true faith. So first of all, we want to look at Paul's preaching at Philippi. Now, uh, some believe that all four of these men spoke and perhaps they did. But uh, we do read that Paul was speaking and perhaps he was speaking for all of them. Now, Paul's usual custom when he arrived in a certain city was to first go to the local synagogue where he might have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Uh, he was a rabbi. He would be recognized as a rabbi and sometimes was even asked to, to say a word. Uh, but he would go to the Jewish synagogue because he wanted to take the gospel, first of all, to the Jews, as he says, and then to the Greeks. Uh, apparently, though, there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. Uh, in order to have a synagogue, there must have been a quorum of at least ten Jewish men. And being predominantly Roman and Italian, Philippi didn't even have ten. So they couldn't have a Jewish synagogue. Uh, and uh, so they'd gone to the city uh, to preach the gospel. They couldn't find the synagogue. There wasn't one. And in verse 12, it says, um, and we were at the end of verse 12, and we were staying in that city for some days. Now, what were they doing? Well, we're not sure, but I'm sure of one thing. I'm sure they were praying, asking God to direct them, asking God to open opportunities and trying basically to figure out exactly what do we do here? How do how do we go about? We can't go into the synagogue. There's no synagogue. What do we do? Now, it's interesting that when they arrive here in Philippi, there's no one to meet them, no one to welcome them. You remember when God told Peter in a vision to go down to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius. And when he arrived, he found Cornelius there. But Cornelius had invited his family and friends and they had all filled up his house and they said, we're all present before God to hear the things commanded you by God. <clears throat> well, here he's in Philippi and there's nobody. No, where's this man from Macedonia? Remember, he had the vision of this man from Macedonia who was beckoning them, pleading with them, come over and help us. Where is he? Well, we don't necessarily believe he was an actual man, but 
There's no one, no one to greet them, no one to welcome them, no one there waiting to hear what they had to say. And I'm sure they asked around and they found that every Sabbath, as was the custom, a group of women gathered outside of the city down by the riverside for prayer. And so that sounds like an opportunity. And so we read in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now isn't it wonderful too that uh, they didn't despise the fact that they were going to speak to a group of women. Uh, some religions might despise that. Some people might despise that or look down their nose at it. But Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they found that as an opportunity. So they went there to talk to them about Christ. Um, now, Luke doesn't tell us what they said. It just says they spoke, they spoke with them. But we know that they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was their mission. Uh, there is no missions or missionaries if they're not preaching Christ. They came to proclaim the same message they preached elsewhere and everywhere. I wonder, though, where, how they started this conversation. Uh, how much did these women know? Or what had they heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Had they heard anything at all? Assuming that they knew little to nothing, they at least had the Old Testament scriptures and they read those scriptures and they uh, perhaps even read them together. Paul, it says when he would go on later to Thessalonica, that he did find a synagogue and entered the synagogue. And it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, that is from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, these Jewish ladies or perhaps proselytes or God-fearers, they're hearing this message perhaps for the first time that this man, Jesus, is actually the Christ, the one that we've been waiting for. And what a message for these Jewish women, they've gathered by the riverside to pray, and now they're hearing the good news of salvation through Christ. This Jesus, as He was promised long ago, He was promised in the prophets, and now He has come. And yet, as wonderful as this message was, for any one of these women to truly understand and grasp the meaning and tremendous significance of that message and to fully embrace it, there would need to be an amazing, powerful work of God upon their hearts. They wouldn't believe it. No matter how eloquently it was stated, no matter how clearly Paul reasoned from the Scriptures, they needed someone to help them. And the only one that could help them was God Himself. The Lord would have to open their heart for them to believe this message. Well, John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that he that made the world came into the world. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, 
was the Word. And the Word, He says, became flesh and dwelt among us. In Him was life, John says. And the life was the light of men. And the light coming into the world shines in the darkness. And it says this, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here the very God, the Son of God, who made the world, He made everything, He says. He came into His world, the world He had created, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It didn't get it. It didn't believe He was who He said He was. He goes on to say that He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came unto His own. Speaking of His own Jewish people, He came into His own and His own did not receive Him. Why? Why didn't they receive Him? How could this be? Did He offer no proof? Or not enough proof? Or perhaps not convincing enough proof? No, He gave abundant proof. Abundant proof. The Apostle Peter, you remember on the day of Pentecost, he spoke to that great crowd of Jews who were there for Pentecost. From all over the world they gathered And he stands up in the midst and he cries out, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He didn't do it off in a corner somewhere where nobody could see it. He did it right in front of everyone. He did all kinds of miracles. He opened the eyes of the blind. Men that had been lame from birth. He told them to rise and stand up and walk. And they did. He walked on the water. He calmed the seas. He did all kinds of things right in their midst. And Peter says, just as you yourselves know, you saw it. You saw it happen. He spoke as no man ever spoke. That was the testimony of one of the Roman soldiers. Never a man spake like him. The great crowds that came to hear him said that he spoke as one having authority and not as their scribes. Oh, they had all kinds of religious teachers, but he stood out. He spoke with authority. Well, the problem wasn't in the proof or the power he demonstrated. The problem was in their own hearts. Their hearts were closed. They didn't want Him. And so, that's the problem with every man who preaches. He's preaching to men whose hearts are closed unless the Lord opens them. Now I want us to look at Lydia's response to Paul's message. In verse 14, we're introduced to her. It says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. This tells us that she was a businesswoman from the city of Thyatira. That was in Asia, the province of Asia. Um, uh, It was known, uh, this particular city was known for their dyes. If we want to dye something, uh, we just can go to the store and buy some dye and mix it up and there we go. Well, they uh, dyes came from natural resources and they were hard to get and often expensive to get. Uh, 
But purple was an exceptionally expensive dye. It was made, they say, from some sort of shell, shellfish. Uh, purple cloth would, was a very lucrative product, an expensive product. Not many people but the royalty used it. And Lydia appears to have been quite successful as a businesswoman. Doesn't speak about her husband. Perhaps she had none or she was a widow. Uh, but uh, she was still successful nonetheless. And it says she also was a worshiper of God. John R. Stott describes this as believing and behaving like a Jew without having become one. Uh, they weren't proselytes, so they didn't enter into the whole uh, circumstances and ceremonies of the Jewish faith. But they believed in the one God. Uh, they didn't believe in many gods like their culture would have said. They believed in the one true and living God. Someone said that despite her success in the world, she knew there was still something missing in her life. She was a Gentile, but had come over to the Jewish faith, obviously searching for something, searching for something that had some meaning. She worshipped not many gods, but the one God who made heaven and earth. She appears devout in her Jewish religion. Uh, even in that mostly pagan city, she's remembering the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. And so she's remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. And so she gathers at the riverside with these few Jewish women gathering together to pray. Someone said she was nevertheless still a stranger to the Gospel. Her heart was closed to the Son of God and needed to be open to receive Him. Lydia was a most attractive character. She was a productive member of the community. She was a morally upright churchgoer, but she still had a closed heart. She was unconverted. And so the Lord had to open her heart. That's how we know that she had a closed heart to the gospel like all men do by nature. And so the Lord had to open her heart. Now, before we... Look at what that means that the Lord opened her heart. I want us to look, first of all, at what it means that she had a closed heart. We usually think of a heart as the seat of the emotions and affections. And then even in Scripture, we find that as well sometimes. But the Scripture also uses it in a much broader sense. In the Bible, the heart includes the affections, but it also includes the mind. It includes the, heart, the, the, the affections and includes the will. It includes the mind uh, because the, it says that a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So it's not just an emotional thing. It's something you think with. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It refers to the whole man. When the Lord says, my son, give me your heart, he, more, he means more than just give me your emotions. A lot of people, that's all religion is. It's a big emotional trip. And they don't feel like they're benefiting unless their emotions have been stirred up. And as long as their emotions are stirred up, they can go about and live any way they want. And go to church and weep and cry and, and get all excited. And then they go right back into the world and live just like they want to live. But no, the heart is speaking of the whole man, his, his mind, his thinking, his affections, and his will. Proverbs 23.12, apply your heart 
to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. In Daniel chapter 1, you remember Daniel, it says, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. They're there in Babylon and they're, they're going to have to uh, indulge in the culture and be surrounded by it. But he purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's delicacies. That's not talking about an emotion. It's not talking about some affections, how I feel like it today. It was a purpose of his heart. as a determination of his heart. Well, so here when it says the Lord opened her heart, it's speaking about her mind, her affections, and her will. The Bible tells us this about the natural man's mind. When I say natural man, I mean those uh, men and women who are born into the world as you and I are. We're born sinners because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. We're born not only with a bad record, but with a bad heart. And that means, first of all, our mind is darkened. Our mind is darkened. If you would, please turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 The Apostle Paul is, is addressing a largely Gentile church, not completely Gentile, but largely Gentile church. And he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of your as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Here it speaks of a heart being blinded. Blinded where they can't really see. They can't really understand. It's not that they don't have a brain. They certainly have a brain and they can figure out lots of things in this world. But when it comes to the spiritual things, they don't understand it. They don't really get it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but uh, just listen to what Paul says about the natural man. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And that's exactly what the natural man thinks about the preaching of the gospel and the preaching particularly of the cross. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central message of the gospel. If you want to boil it all down, say, what's the central message of the gospel? It's that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. In our place, He stood, sealed our pardon with His blood. Well, their minds are darkened and they're blinded to spiritual things. Paul says that for the natural man... He thinks the preaching of the cross is utter foolishness. It makes nothing to him. It means nothing to him. Uh, he finds no delight in it. He finds no comfort in it. You're talking about this man who was put on a cross and died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So what? It's foolishness. To the Jews, it was, it was not foolishness, but it was a stumbling block. The preaching of the cross... They couldn't see that. It didn't fit into their idea of God and how He works. 
They were waiting for the Messiah, but they wanted the Messiah and expected the Messiah to come riding in on a, on a charger and it was going to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. Well, here's a Savior who comes, the Messiah comes, and what happens? He's crucified in weakness. He's led as a, as a sheep to the slaughter. That's a stumbling block to them. And it was a stumbling block to them because they were looking not for a righteousness that comes from someone else, but they were trying to establish their own righteousness. And that isn't a fault only of the Jewish people. It's a fault of all men. They want to appear to be righteous themselves. They think there's some way they can work their way to heaven, that they can be made right with God by what they do. The Apostle Paul loved the Jewish people. He was a Jew. He loved the Jewish people. And he said this. He said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They didn't understand. They were going about, he said, seeking to establish their own righteousness, which is through the law. They think God wants me to be righteous. I'm going to follow His commandments. The problem was that is that no man keeps the commandments of God perfectly. No one does. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man breaks the commandments of God. So if you're going to be made righteous before God by keeping His commandments, you're doomed already. They want to establish their own righteousness. Their minds are darkened. They're blinded to spiritual things. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in fact, turn over there if you would. This is a very important passage that speaks to this issue. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul begins chapter 4 saying this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, speaking about the ministry of preaching the gospel, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You can see how he could lose heart. He's preaching to people who think that his message is foolishness. Or it's a stumbling block. They don't want to hear it. And then he goes down in verse 3. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, they don't, they don't see it. They don't get it. They don't believe it. Their minds have been darkened. They've been blinded. And that's a serious problem. Because that's the heart is closed to the gospel because it sees no wisdom in it. It sees nothing but foolishness. But not only is man's mind darkened, he's blinded by his sin, his affections are misplaced. It's part of the heart. Not only the mind, but the affections. They are misplaced. That refers to his, his desires, his likes, his dislikes. The natural man doesn't even desire the things of the Spirit of God, the Bible says. Love and hate speak of the affections. And yet, 
in John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus said that light has come into the world. Speaking of himself, light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. They don't want the light. They would rather stay in the darkness. And he explains that they don't want to even come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. He hates the light. He hates Jesus. He loves his sin. He's just trying to figure out ways why he doesn't have to come to Christ. Why he doesn't need to come to Christ. He hates the light, Jesus said. He loves his sin. Man was created to enjoy God, to love God, to honor God. And yet they don't want to have anything to do with God. Now that doesn't mean they don't want to be religious. And never mistake someone being religious as being an evident evidence that they love God. That doesn't mean they love God. Not at all. Thomas Boston, one of the Puritans, said, the natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced. He is a spiritual monster. His face is towards hell, his back towards heaven. Therefore, God calls him to turn. He loves what he should hate and hates what he should love. Joys in what he ought to mourn for and mourns for what he rejoices in. Glories in his shame and is ashamed of his glory. Abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. That sounds like a spiritual monster. But we're not talking about some of those people out there, you see. We're talking about each one of us by nature are in that condition. Everyone, even the children. Oh, we love the children. I love to watch them. I love to watch them in the gym playing and running about. But we know that even children have the same kind of heart. It hasn't developed and expressed itself in the ways that an adult has, but it's their heart is corrupt. Their affections are misplaced. But also their will is in bondage to sin. So his mind is blinded. His affections are misplaced. His will is in bondage to sin. Men often speak of man as having a free will. By this, they usually mean that he has the ability to choose right or wrong, good or evil. And the matter of even coming to Jesus Christ for salvation, they say, well, he has the ability to come or reject him. All he has to do is say yes or no, and that his will is neutral. He can go either way. But that's not what the Bible teaches, though. It really isn't. The Bible says that we are all born slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to sin. Willing slaves, but slaves nonetheless. Martin Luther wrote the famous treatise entitled The Bondage of the Will. He argued that man's will is in one sense free, he does what he wants, but in another sense it's in bondage because he does what he wants, and only what he wants, and what he wants is sin, is to sin. He doesn't want to follow God. They're in bondage. Some say, well, they're, they're like, I've used this illustration before, I know, but they're in jail, they're in bondage, but they're kind of like Otis on Andy Griffith show. <laughs> Remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? Any of you still watch that? Otis is the town drunk. Nice guy, even a nice drunk. 
<laughs> he wasn't ever mean, everything, but uh, he'd get drunk every so often, and he didn't go home. His wife would get mad at him, so he'd come to the local sheriff's station, and he'd walk in, stumble in, and he'd go over to the jail cell, and he'd open the door, and he'd close it behind him, and he'd get in the cot and go to sleep, sleep it off. The next day he gets up, and he, they're there or not, he reaches his arm out, and the key is located just right out to the door. He grabs the key and unlocks the door, and he goes out. Not much of a prisoner, would you say? <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people think about men being, yes, they're, bond, they're in bondage, but they can get out if they want. All they got to do is turn the key and they get out. No. No, the Bible says we're locked in. We're in bondage to sin. Love that hymn by John Wesley or Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Couldn't do it by himself. God had to do something. But man is in bondage to sin. What does God require of a sinner? The Gospel says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's think about that. Repent from what? From your sins. Wait a minute. How or why would a sinner turn from what he loves? And how or why would a sinner turn to what he hates and despises? He doesn't want Christ. He doesn't love Christ. Why would he turn from his sins, what he loves, to Christ whom he hates? And then he's told to believe. They're to to put their faith and their hope and their trust into what they think is foolishness. How could a sinner ever be saved? John Murray said that man in his natural state is psychologically, morally, and spiritually incapable of understanding, affection, and will which will enable him to subject to the law of God and respond to the gospel of His grace and to appreciate the things of the Spirit of God or to do those things that are well-pleasing to Him. He doesn't have it within him. Why? Because he's a sinner. He's born in sin. He lives in sin. And he's in bondage to his sin. Jesus said this in John chapter 6. And you should know this verse very well. He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. That's a pretty important verse. No man can come. That's a word of what? Ability. Does he have the ability to come to Christ anytime he wants? No. And it's not because God is holding him off and saying, no, you can't come. It's because his own heart is saying, I don't want to come. And the greatest and most powerful and sincere preaching in the world will never convince them to come to Christ. Men heard the greatest preacher who's ever lived, and what did they do? They crucified him. They crucified him. We're going to talk about that tonight in the Lord's Supper. And so here is Lydia, like all people. Her heart needs to be opened. Charles Spurgeon said she didn't open her heart. Her prayers didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. The Lord Himself must open the heart to receive the things which make for our peace. To operate savingly upon the human heart belongs to God alone. 
We may reach them, we grant you, in the natural and common way, but so to reach them as the enemy of God shall become his friend and that the stony heart shall be turned to flesh is a work of grace and nothing short of divine power can accomplish it. We pray you, brethren, never forget this. Never forget this. The Scripture commands us to come. The Scriptures command us to repent. But man cannot repent, doesn't want to repent. It's a work of God and of God alone. Now, what does he do when he, when he opens the heart as he did to Lydia? Well, that mind that was blinded by sin, who couldn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, somehow, and, and I'm not even going to begin to ex- try to explain how he does it. I don't know how he does it. But all of a sudden, things start making sense that never made sense before. The Bible that just seemed like words on a page. Yes, they understood certain things about it, but it just never really gripped them. Now it just almost jumps off the page. And they understand. They said, that's me. The message of the, the Gospel, which no doubt Paul preached to them, was that you're a sinner. Like all men, you fall short of the glory of God. The natural man doesn't want to hear that too much. He'll admit that he's got some problems. He'll admit that you know, he's not as good as he ought to be. I'm not perfect, you know. But you say, no, you're a, such a sinner that you won't even come to the Christ for salvation. You're such a sinner that you'd rather trust in your own righteousness than the righteousness of Christ. That's foolishness. They want no part of it. God has to do something, and He does. And He opens their eyes. Now they see their need for Christ. They see, no, I am a wretched sinner. That hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They back off. Wait, let's, let's soften those words a little bit. Let's don't say wretch. Let's say soul. They don't want to hear that, that they're wretches. But that's what the Bible says. And now they all of a sudden they understand it. They receive it. This is what God's Word says. It must be true. Whether I feel it or not, it's true because God said it. Everything changes. Now their views not only of themselves, but of Christ. That changes so much. Oh, maybe they even acknowledge, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe He died on the cross for our sins. But it just seemed like just a faraway dream. Now it means everything to them. Now Christ is their firm foundation. Christ is their hope. Their only hope. They can't save themselves, but Christ has done everything to save me. See, the natural man doesn't want to hear that. He wants to think that he has a part in it. I remember talking to a lady a while back who just tried to share with her the Gospel and and told her how that we can't do anything to save ourselves. We have to look to Him to do it all. And she said, no, I don't like that. I don't like that. It's because she lived a pretty tough life and she had to, in a sense, pull herself up by her own bootstraps and she had to be tough with life and all of that. And she thought, and you're going to tell me I can't do it? She didn't want to hear it. But when God opens their eyes, when God opens their heart, all of a sudden they see they can't do it. And then they see the glorious truth that Christ did it all. That Jesus Christ, when He died upon the cross, He wasn't dying as some martyr. He was dying as our substitute. He took our place on the cross. 
He was our substitute. All of those sacrificial lambs that were slain throughout the history of Israel, they were all pointing to Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now He becomes precious. More precious than anything or anyone. And they're ready to forsake everything to follow Him. God has to open their heart to do that. We can see why so many sermons and so many exhortations and pleadings and even powerful persuasive arguments go unheeded. Because without this special, powerful, effectual drawing by the Father, we draw alone. We just try it all on our own to get people to come. The most powerful preaching in the world by itself will never draw a sinner to Christ. You see, the Jews in Christ's day, they heard the most powerful preaching. They saw the most mighty miracles and they still would not come to Christ. The Apostle Paul was a chosen vessel, a brilliant man, equipped with greater gifts and graces than all the other apostles. He exercised more diligence than any of the other apostles in spreading the gospel. He said he became all things to all men that by all means he might win some. And often he would go into a city and preach the same message and they would either drive him out or try to stone him. He was arrested. He'll be arrested before this one's over. They don't want to hear. Paul was a great vessel Apollos, another one of the teachers in that day, was a great orator and mighty in the Scriptures. In the Corinthian church, they began to favor one or the other. And Paul reminds them, wait a minute, who do you think we are? Who, am I, who is Paul and who is Apollos? And his basic answer is, we're nothing. We're mere servants through whom you believe. I planted Apollos. He comes along and waters that plant. But God must give the increase. God does it. It is a work of God. And what happened in the life of Lydia, in the heart of Lydia, happens to every single person who becomes a Christian. Jesus Himself said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You'll never understand it. You'll never grasp it. You'll never really believe it. You might give a little head knowledge affirmation but you'll never embrace it as your only hope. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, while others make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. There were other women gathered at the riverside who also heard Paul preach the Gospel, but we have no record of them believing. Maybe there were some that did. Maybe they all did. Luke only tells us about one. If she was the only one, it wasn't because she was better or smarter or wiser or had a better disposition. It was because God did something in her that He didn't do in the others. He opened her heart. She believed the message. She believed all of it. She believed everything Paul was saying. She didn't say, well, I don't know about that and I don't know about this. She embraced every bit of it. 
when he told them that they were sinners like all men, Jews and Gentiles, they've all sinned. She didn't argue with that. It's true. When he tried to show them that their righteousness was like filthy rags in God's sight, she agreed. They were helpless and hopeless. She believed. When he pointed them to Christ, she said, He's the Savior. He's my Savior. She trusted in Him. Well, next time we'll look at the fruit and evidence of her faith. I think it's so important to see what she did. She's just amazing to see this transformation. She was baptized. She publicly identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. We don't make as much about baptism as we should. But remember, when Jesus gave this great commission to take the Gospel into all the world, He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And though baptism is not in any way essential or necessary for salvation, it is not optional. It's a sign of a a meek and humble heart when we're willing to, to follow Him in baptism. We know it doesn't save us. It doesn't make us right with God, but simply because He said it. And then she engaged in good works. She immediately begged these men to stay at her place. And she would exercise hospitality. She wanted to to serve the Lord by serving others. What a wonderful example of God's fruit in her life at such an early stage in the in her conversion. Well, let me just ask you, do you believe God has opened your heart to the gospel? Have you do you really go to the scriptures that whatever the scripture says, I'm going to believe. Old Testament and New, I'm going to believe every word of it. If you're arguing in your mind with the Bible, then you probably haven't had that work done yet. You still have a closed heart. What should you do? Well, I can't open your heart. You can come talk to me. I'll talk to you. I'll try to give you counsel and point you to the Scriptures and point you to Christ. But ultimately, only God can open your heart. So cry out to Him. And that might be the first evidence that He's began to open your heart. It doesn't happen necessarily all in one one swooping moment. It can be gradual. But more and more you see your mind changing. You see your affections leaning now, not away from Christ, but towards Him and towards His people. And your will is turning towards Him. Lord, I want to follow You. Oh, I believe, Lord, help Thou my unbelief. Have you followed Christ? That's the evidence whether He's opened your heart or not. Don't look for some great, miraculous transformation like the Apostle Paul. Here's this woman by the riverside listening. All of a sudden, it's making a lot of sense. And she's nodding her head, nodding her heart. And she's saying, Receive me, O Lord. Receive me.